Growing up in Washington, D.C., every uh, year, every other year, we would have military families come into the community and come into my life and make an impression quickly and deeply. And I asked one of my friends, I said, uh, how do you make friends so quickly? And he says, well, I know I'm just going to be here for two years. We're trained at that. We're skilled. We can't make friends immediately. We aren't going to make any. Ben and Jody and their beautiful daughter, Jessica Skog, have come into our life a little bit over a year ago. I don't know if, Ben, you have any military background, but they have made an impression deep and long and lasting. It's a good thing that for Christians, people don't have to come into your life and out. Uh, ben has made a relationship with this church and with uh, the Shouses that will be for eternity. He comes... Uh, to preach this morning, just about six or seven or eight days before he leaves us, as one of the leaves this area, as one of the first uh, parts of the move of Golden Gate Seminary down south, he'll move his office and the uh, office of development of Golden Gate Seminary, his part of it, keep it open here for a few months, but it will be the first to move, maybe on the heels of the Doctor of Ministry program down uh, to the south. We thank you for all you mean to this church and will mean and mean to us personally. His text comes from Exodus, the 17th chapter, verses 1 to 7. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with them some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. And the next voice you hear will be from Dr. Ben Scott. Thank you, Tiburon Baptist Church, for being our church. We have uh, joined just about a year ago, and uh, you have made a deep impact in our lives, and we are thankful and we are grateful for it. And as we move down south, we will not forget you. And uh, Dr. John, uh, my friend, I thank you for being my pastor and, uh, and also a dear friend. Thank you. This morning, we are looking at the passage of Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. 
I remember years ago listening to my favorite pastor, uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney, a former president of Westminster Theological Seminary, preach on this very passage, and he used an illustration that I will uh, steal, lift, uh, perhaps, uh, but this illustration is not original with me, but it, it summarizes what is going on here, and so I will steal it from him. There was a Methodist pastor who wrote a play that takes place two years after the end or the conclusion of World War II. In fact, he penned this play entitled The Sign of Jonah, written by Gunther Rutenborn, in one of the prominent cities in Germany in which one of the major concentration camps was held. And he writes this play as the townspeople within this town and also nationally in Germany, as the world is now asking, how could you have done what you did? Why did you not stop the killing of millions of Jewish and Polish peoples? How could you let these atrocities go on? That pressure was not only felt in Germany, and Rufenborn writes how that pressure was felt in this little town. To the play we go. The play starts with a crowd beginning to feel fervor, beginning to feel the pressure from the outside world, and they're asking and answering the question, who among us is to blame for the Holocaust? The town begins to broil over with fury, trying to find an answer. And they say to themselves, certainly, what we have to do is find someone who had knowledge of the events, and that person, if he or she did not speak out, then has partial blame in the events of the Holocaust. They go first to the house that sits directly across from the train yard, where hundreds of thousands of Jewish and Polish people were gathered up in train cars, like cattle, shipped off and never to return. They go to that door. And they say, you sit directly across from the train yard. You saw everything going on. Certainly, certainly you knew what was going on. And if you knew and you did not say something so that the rest of us could put a stop to this, then you have partial blame. She says to them, I am but a housewife whose husband was off to the war. I was raising a family on my own in the middle of a war-torn village. Every piece of this war, I shut my drapes. I boarded my windows. I wanted to keep myself and my children as far away from this war as I possibly could. Oh, I heard things. I even glimpsed some things. But I shut myself out to that war. And if you had lived here, you would have done the same. I don't have any blame in this. I tried to survive with my children. I heard cries, I heard shrieks, but I hold no blame. Townspeople, hearing this response, accept her defense. And they say to her, well, if it's not you, if it's not you who has blame, then who is it? And she says, we all know the man who owns the train yard. We know him to be a meticulous man. 
We know how meticulous his record keeping is. He has run that train yard for 30 years and he's run it since the war. If anyone knows how many people got on the train and got off and never returned, certainly it is he. The crowd's fury then is directed to the train owner. He steps forward amongst the crowd and he begins his defense. Yes, yes, I kept track of how many people were getting on my train right here at this station. Yes, I knew how many miles we were going out into the woods. And yes, I know how many got off. But I'm not to blame. The second we got there, I closed my eyes. I didn't want to know the details of what was going on. I didn't want to know the answer to those shrieks and those cries. And I closed my eyes to it. And if you had owned this train station, you would have done the same thing. And if I had raised my voice in complaint, they would have killed me and used my train anyway. I'm not to blame. The town folk hear his defense and they accept it as well. And then they turn to him and say, well, if it's not you, then who is to blame? Who is to blame for the millions of deaths in the Holocaust? He then points to a retired SS soldier. And he says, if anyone among us is to blame, it's him. He wore the uniform proudly. We know him to be a proud man. We know him to be a soldier in the SS position. If anyone here is to blame, it is him. The ire of the crowd turns. They locate the soldier. He steps forward. And he says, it's wartime. I am a soldier and I have done things that I am not proud of. I have done things that I will have to live with for the rest of my life. Do I have blood on my hands? Yes. But do I bear the iniquity of the entire war, of the entire Holocaust? Absolutely not. I am a soldier, which means I am a man under authority. When someone above me gives me instruction and command, I must carry it out because I am a soldier. Yes, I have blood on my hands, but do I bear the responsibility of the entire war? I do not. The crowd accepts his defense as well. But they are not satisfied completely. They begin to ask themselves, who then is to blame? Whoever it is who is to blame must have two things. One, must have full knowledge of all the events that went on. And two, must have had enough power to do something about it. As you can tell what happened, this town at the end of this play put the only person, rather, the only being, who had both full knowledge and full ability to stop it. They placed God on trial. I won't give you the rest of this play. I recommend it to you, The Sign of Jonah, written by Gunther Rutenborn. It's only 98 pages long, but it is a good play. But imagine for a minute the audacity 
placing God on trial. Can you think for a moment about creation? The very creation that God created with a word. Humanity, He created from the dust and breathed life and breath into its very lungs. Giving it life, giving it days of life, giving it purpose. That very creation then turns its ire and anger against God and places the almighty creator, sovereign God on trial. Can you imagine the audacity? Before you answer no. Before you answer no. Might I remind you that you and I place God on trial all the time. Oh, it might not be in that type of an official capacity, but we do do it, don't we? When the circumstances of our lives do not match up with our desires, we tend to shake our fist into the heavens. And we say, why, God, have you done this to me? I should have been here, and here's where you have brought me. Here's what you have done to me. And in that moment, in that moment, we have done in a non-official, but real nonetheless, what those people in that city of Germany did. Before we feel too bad, we need to know that we are in good company. Because this type of an event, people, creation, placing their creator on trial for the circumstances in their life, it's been done before. It's even done in the pages of Scripture. Most of the time, the court uh, scenes that you see in Scripture are the reverse. They're God speaking through His prophets, placing the people on trial for their covenant breakage. But here in Exodus 17, we have the opposite. We have the people placing God on trial. The first thing we need to do in order to understand what is going on here is you need to understand that the people of Israel are in a covenant relationship with this God. Meaning that God has said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. Except here's how we will carry out our relationship with one another. I will give you laws. We know them as the Ten Commandments. And you will either carry them out or not carry them out. And when you carry them out, when you are obedient to my covenant law, I will pour out, in fact, I am obligated to pour out on you covenant blessing. So if you are obedient to my law, I will give you uh, offspring. I will bless you in your crops, in the field, in your livestock, in war. But if, however, you are disobedient to my covenant law, then I am obligated to shower upon you not the covenant blessings, but all the covenant curses. And they are in fact the opposite of the covenant blessings. No longer will your livestock be blessed. They will be sick and diseased. Your crops will not only not be blessed, but I will give you plague and pestilence. And in war, not only will I not fight for you as I did, as I did at the battle of Jericho, but I will rise up an enemy nation. I will fight for them and I will take you captive and send you into captivity. Obligation. God owes them either blessing or cursing based upon their obedience or disobedience in the covenant. Now with that background, you can understand a little bit of this passage. You see, the people of Israel think that they have been obedient to God. 
They think that they have been obedient to God, and therefore what does God owe them for obedience? At the very least, basic sustenance, food, water, provision, covenant blessing. And so here when they find themselves lacking food in Exodus 16, and here in Exodus 17 lacking water, they bring charges against God. Hear them. Therefore, verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we might drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And more importantly, why do you, and here most of our English versions say, Test the Lord. But really the word is try. Not like, oh, son, you are trying my patience. But try as in trial. Moses is saying, when you are grieving, when you are grumbling about your lack of water, what you are really doing is placing God on trial. Why do you try the Lord? This now becomes an official thing. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and they said, Why now have you brought us up out of Egypt and kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you hear the language there? God, you owe us covenant blessing. You owe that to us. You're obligated for that. But instead, we are so lacking of thirst that we are beginning to die. Us, our children, our livestock. Furthermore, God, we think that you have deceived us. You have not brought us up out of Egypt to bless us. You have brought us out here to kill us. Two charges of covenant breakage on behalf of the people to God. You have violated the covenant. You have not given us provision. And you have brought us up here to die. Let's see now how this trial goes. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Here is where we can draw a small analogy from our modern court. When there is a case, when someone has done something against the state of California, the state of California hires a prosecuting attorney on behalf of the people. In other words, the prosecuting attorney represents the good people, sometimes good, of the state of California. And that lawyer then represents the charges from the people in that courtroom. The same thing holds true here. God says to Moses, Moses, gather the elders of the people of Israel from amongst them to bring their charges, to represent them in this courtroom. They are the the, the prosecuting attorney in this passage. Take with you the elders of Israel. And in your hand, your staff with which you struck the Nile. We know who the people are. We know who the prosecuting attorney is. Let me ask you in this court case here, who the judge is. Our first answer should be God. It's true, but not in this case. The judge here is the one who has the staff, or rather in our modern illustration, the gavel in his hand. Here in this case, it's Moses. 
Moses takes some of the elders of the people of Israel who represent the people and their charges against God. And you take your staff, your rod of justice. You be the judge in this case. Well, if the people and the elders are represented and the judge is Moses, then who's the defendant? These are charges against God. God is the defendant. Here's one of the things that blows me away about this passage. When I think about the majesty and the holiness of God Almighty, and I think about the audacity of these sinful people placing Him on trial, charging Him with covenant infidelity. If I'm God, I send blue lightning bolts out of the sky and slaughter them all. Glad I'm not gone. But what does God do? He blows us away. Not literally. Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Verse 6. Reminds you of the grace and mercy of our God. Behold, I will stand before you at the rock at Horeb. If that verse does not shatter you, the fact that sinful humanity is placing God on trial and this God humiliates himself and says, I will actually stand trial and I will hear these accusations of guilt curled and and, and thrown at me. I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, Moses. Now here's our question. How are we to know whether God is innocent or guilty in this trial? I'm going to get technical for just a minute. Do not lose me. Don't let me lose you. Either way, that's not good. There is in Scripture a term called a trial by ordeal. This is a divinely sanctioned event whereby God makes details and knowledge that only He knows known to the people through a specific ordeal. Okay? The biggest one in Scripture, well not the biggest one, the easiest one is in Numbers chapter 5. It is called the test of adultery. How many remember this passage in number 5? Excellent. Four of us have talked. In this passage, in Numbers 5, if the husband suspects his wife of committing adultery, and yet he did not catch her, and yet he has no proof, no witnesses, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, he is then allowed to bring her in front of the priest. And he is to say to the priest, I have zero proof, but I believe she has been unfaithful to me. The priest then concocts a potion and he hands it to the woman and he says, when you drink this potion, if you are guilty of committing adultery, even though nobody knows, nobody has seen except God, let him give his knowledge to us about this circumstance. If you drink it and you are guilty, then may your abdomen swell, may your thighs waste away. In other words, may you die upon drinking this if you are guilty of adultery, though no one has seen If, however, you are innocent of the charges, when you drink it, nothing will happen. 
and we will know that your husband is an idiot. Trial by ordeal. Knowledge that only God has is made known to the people through the outcome of an ordeal. Now we come back here. How will we know if God is innocent or guilty of the charges? Easy. The outcome of this ordeal. God says to Moses, I will stand there before you with the rock and Horeb, and you will take your rod, your staff, and you will strike the rock. And if nothing happens, then you will know that I am guilty. You will know that I have deceived you, I have violated the terms of the covenant, and I have brought you out here to kill you. And you'll know. But if I'm innocent, then when you take your staff and you strike the rock at Horeb, where God stands, and if when you strike the rock, life-giving water gushes forth, and you and your livestock and your children drink until you are content, then you will know that you have charged the God Almighty, the God of the universe, the Sovereign One, wrongly. Let me just ask a question. Is water from a rock a normal thing? I mean, when was the last time you were thirsty and said to yourself, California's in the middle of a drought. I don't have water to wait. Aha! I know. We'll just gather some rocks. Strike them and let the water flow free. We'll have enough to wash our cars, water our lawn, even in a water van. Is that a normal thing? And we all know what happens here. Moses takes his rod, the staff. He approaches God who is standing at the rock. And he strikes it. And life-giving water flows free. The people are satisfied. God is innocent of all charges. I've got a question for you. Scripture says in the New Testament that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is for our edification, our correction, our reproof, our training in righteousness. Let me ask you a question. Have you been edified? I didn't ask if your curiosity about an odd passage was satisfied. Have you been edified? Have you been corrected? Have you been trained in righteousness? Most of us, if we're honest, would say, well, I enjoyed the show. But to tell you the truth, I have not been edified yet. And I think that's the point. You see, Jesus being Jesus. He actually thinks that all Scripture is somehow, in some way, about Him. Now, you might say to yourself intellectually, wow, <laughs> that's just Jesus looking back in the Old Testament, putting new meaning to it. I guess this goes back to my quasi-fundamental roots. When the Scripture says something, I believe it. When Jesus says something, I believe it. And when Jesus makes the statement that somehow, some way, 
all of Scripture is ultimately about Him. I believe it. Our question then is this. How on earth is Exodus 17 some way, somehow, preparing us for, preparing us for the coming and the work of Jesus Christ? Well, it would be easy if scriptures, like somewhere in the New Testament, actually made the connection for us so we didn't have to make a leap, a leap of logic, wouldn't it? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Here Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 1 he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. You know what that's polite for? I don't want you to be ignorant any longer. <laughs> I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now we know that Paul is locating what he's about to say within a certain uh, generation. And let me ask you the question. My guess is all of you, from the greatest to the least, least know the answer. What generation in Israel's history passed through the cloud and then passed through the sea? What cloud are we dealing with? Let's see it in verse 2, just to be clear. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What cloud? The Shekinah glory cloud. No doubt. What sea were they baptized into? The Red Sea. Obviously. So in other words, Paul here is talking about the Exodus generation and the things that went on in that Exodus generation. Look at verse 3. And they all ate the same spiritual food. What food did God miraculously provide to this generation? Manna, in fact. Exodus 16. If he used Exodus 16 as his first illustration, I wonder what he's going to say about Exodus 17. Look at verse 4. And they all drank from the same spiritual rock. For they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was... Do you see your, your versions there? What does Paul say the rock was? Rather, who does Paul say the rock was? And... The rock was Christ. You don't have to imagine it. It's here. It's here. So in other words, that rock that was struck in Exodus 17, in which the people had placed God on trial, struck the rock, and the rock provided life-giving water, somehow, some way, that passage is pointing forward and preparing us for something to do with Jesus Christ. Paul then comes and says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the rock was Christ. So now we ask the question, how does all that prepare us for Jesus Christ? Look down at verse 6 and then 11. Verse 6 says, Now all these things happened as, and the English here says examples. The Greek word here is the word tupos, or type. All the things that happened to them, the Exodus generation, the Shekinah glory, the manna, the rock, all of it, they were types. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, as a type, as an illustration. And they were written for whose instruction? Did you see that? 
not for theirs. For our instruction, Paul says. So here's our question. How in the world does Exodus 17, written years beforehand, for our instruction, how does it prepare us for the coming, the work of Jesus Christ, the rock who was struck at Horeb? And here is now where we take the details of that story of Exodus 17 and ask them of Jesus. Back then in Exodus 17, the people placed God on trial. Was, was Christ ever on trial at the hands of his own creation? Oh. Yes, in fact, he was. His own creation. His own creation had him arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in and before the trial, they hurl insults at him. They accuse him of Sabbath breaking, of blasphemy, of making himself equal with God the Father. They mock him, they beat him, they spit on him. And by the way, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was also a trial by an ordeal. Remember in Exodus 17, we could know the guilt or innocence of God based upon what happened at the trial. Same happens here in the trial of Christ. If when they strike Him, if when He dies and He breathes out His last breath, if nothing happens, then Jesus is guilty of all charges. He's a blasphemer, He's a Sabbath breaker, and He is guilty of all these charges. If, however, the miraculous just as water came forth from a rock, if Jesus, after he is struck, after he has died, does something, then he is innocent of all charges. And do you remember the story of the women coming to the tomb after the third day? And they arrive at the tomb and they find it empty. And the angel then speaks to them. And they say, where is Jesus? We have come to anoint His body with oil and with spices. And the angel says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus is innocent of all charges. Perfectly obedient to the will and to the law of God the Father. And His resurrection is proof of that. But furthermore... You remember back in our story, the rock was struck with a staff, with a rod, and life-giving water came forth. Now we have to ask that question, has Christ ever been struck by a rock and given forth life-giving water? Turn with me, lastly, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Then the Jews, because of the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. Verse 33. But when he come coming to Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, with a rod, with a staff. And immediately, two things came out. What were they? Blood, that atoning blood that redeems us, that makes us whole, and not only that, water comes forth. Our question then is not scientific. Did he break the perikinesis sack? Who cares? The question is, has Jesus already set forth in his prior teaching something about life-giving water? And the answer is yes. In John chapter 4, he meets a woman at a well who's pulling up a bucket of water and Jesus sits next to her and says, if you knew who it was seated next to you, you would have asked him for living water. Remember the water back in Exodus 17 was living water so that they might live and have life. The same holds true of Jesus Christ, the rock of God, who was struck and gave forth not merely blood, but also life-giving water. And the one who partakes of this water will never thirst again. What does he mean? He means that when he dies, when he raises from the dead, and when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, that he will usher into this world his Holy Spirit. Life-giving Now, have you been edified? Has this passage prepared you for something about Jesus Christ? My prayer is that it has. All of Scripture, in some way, shape, or form, is ultimately about Jesus Christ. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And for those of you, who have not partaken of Jesus Christ. Who do not know the forgiveness that His blood, perfect shed blood provides. And who are not filled with life-giving water with the Holy Spirit that He also provides. May today be the day of your salvation. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious day. We thank You for the gift of life that You have given to us. And we thank you so much for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. That his work, his perfection, his obedience has purchased for us forgiveness of sins, redemption. The privilege of calling you God the Father. And we are now known as sons and daughters of God Most High. But also that we might be indwelled with the living water, the Holy Spirit. Lord, may you be pleased with everything that we do for you, for your name, for your church, for your glory. And may we do it all for the furtherance of your kingdom. We praise you for the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.